Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm James from Salt Lake City. I'm Jason R. Wallace from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. You might know Catherine O'Hara. SCTV, The Mom and Home Alone, one of the best players in all those Christopher Guest movies. She is a total success, charming and lovely as can be. But when she was starting out, she was kind of different from other actors and comedians. She wasn't really itching for work, for one thing. She quit SCTV kind of on a whim. And at times, she actually kind of actively avoided getting work. David Geffen got my home number and would call me at home. And I was like, who is this guy? Really? <laughs> at the time, like, who is this guy? He said, I got this movie. Because he was one of the producers on Beetlejuice. I got this movie and you should come and do it. Yeah. Um, okay, I got to go. <laughs> it's Bullseye. This week. I talked to the actress Catherine O'Hara about her start on SCTV, blockbuster success with Beetlejuice and Home Alone, and her perfect encapsulation of comic absurdity in Christopher Guest movies like Waiting for Guffman and A Mighty Wind. When in doubt, play insane. Nothing you say has to make sense. You can't lose with stupid and cocky. But first, one of my favorite interviews ever. I talked to Big Boy, half of Outkast. The hip-hop duo swung back and forth across the spectrum of popular music, zigging with cult favorites like AT Aliens and zagging with top 40 hits like The Way You Move. When everybody's going left, we're going to go right. Or we're going to go diagonal. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Um, we're not going to go in the same direction of where music is going. Plus, the guys from My Brother, My Brother and Me offer pop culture advice. And I'll tell you the true story of a man who spent the last decade and a half of his life secretly building something magical in a rented garage. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. My guest Big Boy has sold more than 50 million records as a solo artist and as half of OutKast, maybe the greatest hip-hop group of all time. With their 1994 debut, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music, Big Boy and his partner Andre 3000 introduced one of rap's most distinctive voices, street-minded but just as willing to travel to the stars as to stay on the corner. They broke big in the mid-1990s with hip-hop hits like Rosa Parks and Elevators, then a few years later exploded nationally with monstrous pop hits like So Fresh, So Clean, Miss Jackson, and Big Boy's solo smash, The Way You Move. Big Boy's latest album has an aesthetic that's both familiar and new. It's grounded by the heavy funk of past records, but it follows indie pop collaborators like Waves and Phantogram. Here's a bit of Tom Petty, one of several collaborations with the Swedish band Little Dragon. Yeah, I rock one chain, one medallion, with a whole lot of motherfucking diamonds. It's astounding, like when I be rhyming, always shining like the sun and moon. Like a hot air balloon requires fire. No methamphetamine, but in we get higher. Big boy, dopamine, I mean, I am dope, and now when he's again can even come close. Zip a fat sack, spin a serial killer, oh, nice to meet you, best believe that. Like Ripley's, boy, don't tempt me. I Trying to leave your Kool-Aid glass half empty Your time is running out just like the sand in it Been jamming and half of you to get No, you can't get it That's right, it is an IT We like the apple on your iPhone Like it's always biting Big boy, welcome to Bullseye It's so great to have you on the show Hey man, thanks for having me That was, that was a little nice little intro there I like that Thank you I was um, 
reading a lot about outcast history, and I was really fascinated by descriptions of uh, the dungeon in its first incarnation, the studio where you and and the rest of uh, the dungeon family recorded the first few years of your records. Um, can you tell me about it? Yeah, actually, yeah, the dungeon is um, uh, it was an old house in Southwest Atlanta with an unfinished basement. That the basement really had no walls. The walls were made of this Georgia clay, and uh, you know, it'd be rats and roaches and everything down there, a lot of dust. But uh, some of the best music that we've ever made came out of there. You know, what I'm saying organized noise being the producers. It was actually the basement to Rico Wade's uh, house. His mother let you know like fifteen, twenty guys take over the basement and create music. And that's where it all started. And that's when you, I mean, we're talking about you and Andre are like 16, 17, 18 years old, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd, uh, well, actually, I would wake up and go to school every day. Dre would skip school. And um, he went on later on to get his GED, but uh, I graduated with honors. And, um, you know, my mom wasn't going to let me um, rap or just get, she wasn't going to sign my record deal if I didn't get, get good grades. So, you know, my head was against the wall. I maintained a very high grade point average. And, and, you know, during the day, being in school, and during the night, I'm in the studio. Did you and Andre meet in school? Yeah, we met uh 10th grade, Tri-Cities High School. We were, like, um, new to the school. It was, like, a school of the performing arts. But they brought together, like, three of the roughest schools in Atlanta. And um, uh, they merged them all into one school. And we were new students, and we kind of clicked up. It was, like, a group of five of us. Uh, the other three went on to become bank robbers, and they just got out of jail, like, maybe, like, a couple of months ago. True story. Do, do you remember, like, the, act, the actual first time that you met him? The actual first time I met him was in the lunchroom. And we were just all kind of just hanging out. Um, you know, we were really into clothes and stuff back then, like, uh, you know, jean jackets. And we, you know, dye our clothes different colors. So we were like these uh, hood preppy kids that, you know, just, you know, had basically all the girls on the school on lockdown. You know, we was laying them down like, um, <laughs> like fresh carpet. <laughs> Wait, you were you were dyeing your own clothes? You had like you yeah. were like going to the drugstore buying writ dye and had like yeah, uh, bats in the basement. What you know? What you know about that writ dye? Writ dye in a in a steel bucket, and you can make you can make boys better than Easter eggs. You know what I'm saying? So we were just you know just really manipulating the clothes, and you'd be like, man, yeah, we bought these from Australia. Yeah, I got these shipped over from Holland or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, but it, it was real fly though. We stayed fresh. Can you wait? Can you give me an example of of a fit that you might have worn to school when you were sixteen that okay. might involve some writ dye? Yeah, well, actually, it would be like a, a a polo sweater, like a a, a V neck short sleeve sweater. Uh, it was white, but I dyed like a, a ruby red color. Then I get some guest jeans and I dry, I, I dye them ruby red too. And some tree torns, like the cloth tree torns sure. sneakers. I I dyed them all red, and that'd just be my raspberry surprise. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, man. So we was just really into it all the way. I like the idea of all the outfits having their own title. Yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Big Boy, the rapper and producer who co-founded the Grammy-winning group Outkast. So I, I heard stories about there being, like, 10, 12 guys in this basement staying there till all night until right. everyone had to get up to go to either work or school. Right. Um, and like everybody pulling their money to buy one plate of food and sharing it and that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely, man. It was a Italian little bodega at the, at the sit go 
gas station down the street and they had this thing called a spaghetti special. And I guess it might have had, like, it was like a plate of spaghetti, maybe it had about five or six meatballs on it. And, like, you know, you have, like, three, four, five guys just cutting this meatball, man, getting a little bit of noodles, trying not to sop, uh, sop all the sauce up. So, yeah, we was real thin and fit back then, too. <laughs> Did did you see did you see this at the time as a path to a career? Like, did you see this as something that you were going to do for money for real? Um, I, I just back then it wasn't about so much as like, oh, this is what I'm gonna do for money. It was like, this is what I love to do. It was like a calling, like a pastor going to be, uh, you know, the head of a church or something like that. It's like we were really just really passionate about the music and um, to create. Uh, I think it was the the creating process that really intrigued me the most just to see how songs develop from scratch. Absolutely. I want to play a little bit of this song. I think this might be your first record you ever cut. It's a TLC remix called wow. What About Your Friends? The remix. Yeah, let's take a listen to it. Okay. Backing your homeboy up. Oh, back it. Back it. We're backing each other up. That's crazy. Do you remember uh, what the circumstances were of you guys getting to be on that song? What's the funniest thing that you will not even really realize is I'm sitting in the exact same room where we recorded that verse at wow. right now. It's, it's, it's our studio, Stankoni. I'm in the A room, and this used to be Bobby Brown's studio. Uh, Black Dog and Black Wolf, that was, what I was, that was our names back then. You know what I'm saying? Um uh, was 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 getting on the tracks from young MCs, man, teeny boppers. I mean, I'm talking about not a piece of bass in my throat at all. It's amazing. I want to play a, a little bit of the title song from Outkast's second album, ATLS. Well, it's the M.I. crooked letter, ain't no one better. And when I'm on the microphone, you best to wear your sweater, cause I'm cooler than the polar bear's toenails. Oh, hell, there he go again. Talking that Been corners like I was a curve. I struck a nerve, and now you're about to see the southern plague a serve. I heard it's not where you from, but where you pay rent. Then I heard it's not what you make, but how much you spend, you got me bent like elbows, amongst other things, but I'm not worried. Cause when we set up in the party, like I'm not you scurry, so go get your time box and your sack of nickels. It tickles to see you try to be like Mr. Pickles. Daddy Fat Sax B-I-G-B-O-I is that same mother Put them knuckles to your eye And I try to warn you not to test But you don't listen Giving a shout out to my Uncle Donnell Like yeah. up in prison Now throw your hands in the air And wave them like they just don't care And if you like fish and grits And all that pimp sh- Everybody let me hear you say Oh yeah, yeah. With Atlians, you were really making a statement that you were going to sound like and be different from everyone else on the scene. Exactly. Was that something that the two of you talked about? No, it just it always comes back to the orange origins of the group. It's, you know, our thing was we every when everybody's going left, we're going to go right, or we're going to go diagonal. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Um, we're not going to go in the same direction of where music is going. I mean, that's like outcast. The whole the whole heart and soul and spirit of the group is for people to, to be themselves. It's all about individualism. You know what I'm saying? 
So it, was, it wasn't like it was planned. Like, okay, the next album we want to just, you know, we're going to be, you know, we're going to sound like we from out of space. And we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to jump on the moon and go to Jupiter. And we're going to go back down here. We're going to go to the drive-in movie. Then we're going to slide with Sylvester Sloan, slide stone them, and go holler at James Brown. And we might play the flute. You see what I'm saying? It's like choose your own adventure. Like, it, it just keeps it fun because, I mean, no matter what, the end product is always going to be the funk. And then funk, to me, is the music that make you frown your face up. I want to play this the first single from your next album, Stankonia. It's called Bombs Over Baghdad. Let's oh hear goodness, it. Oh, my goodness, yes, man. Traces on, did you ever think of jump rock a microphone like that? Dead boy, it would still stay free. Big things happen every time we meet, like a track team crash ain't dying to geek. Outcast bumping up and down the street, slam back, can't let by five, 75 MCs, reach down to the beat, cause we get drunk, stay drunk at the club. Should've bought an ounce, but you caught the dub. Should've held back, but you told the punch. Both to meet you good, but you packed the lunch. No G to the U to the G for you. Got a son on the way by the name of Bamboo. Got a little baby girl for a year, Jordan. Never turn my back on my kids for them. Should've hit it, hit it, hit it. I mean, talk about a statement of purpose. To put yeah. that out as your first as your first single on an album. Yeah, man. And that's another one. Like, and I'm gonna tell you, it's crazy too, because when we we picked the record and shot the video, the video just brought the whole song to life. But at the time, the record label got so nervous; they were nervous because um, radio wasn't playing the song, and we just like you gotta just let it marinate for a minute because it's it's, it's like uh, we. we it's, it's, it's like a, a music defibrillator, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's it's gonna shock shock people. So they they pulled off that record when it wasn't getting the radio play, and they jumped on Miss Jackson. But Bombs Were Bad that ended up being the biggest record ever, you know. I'll talk more with Big Boy after a break about the monumental success of Outcast and how it changed his life. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Vince. This is Teresa. We host a show called One Bad Mother. We're a comedy podcast about parenting. Not a parenting podcast. And for some reason, we seem to be most popular among single dudes with no kids. (laughs) Weird. The only advice you'll get from us is when we tell you to stop feeling like for being a mom. Or a dad. Or, you know, a single person with no children. Find us on iTunes or at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Big Boy, the rapper and producer who co-founded the Grammy-winning group Outkast. When Miss Jackson and So Fresh, So Clean became super huge, monstrous hits, right? how did that change your life? Uh, I guess, you know, when the songs, when, it, when everything really just exploded, it, it, things got a lot busier. Um, there was a lot more opportunities, um, nonstop touring. Um, it's just really that, that kind of, to me, it just really catapulted us across the finish line. And, um, with that, that record around that time, I mean, we were just thinking like the world was going to end or whatever. So we were just going out with a bang and just, you know, it's like, just let it all go. It's just really extreme. Outcast extreme is what it was. Thank only. You've been um, with your wife for quite a long time, right? Like almost 20 years? Yeah. 
How long have the two of you been married? Uh, about 13, maybe. What was it like to be a married guy with kids and also be in the biggest pop group in the world? <laughs> um, it was it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's, it's a ride, you know. Um, definitely you have to balance. I mean, um, like I, you know, um, kind of, I mean, even to this day, though, you you have to allot time for things that, you know, that matter. You know what I'm saying? Like football games, piano recitals, band concerts, parent-teacher meeting, donuts with dad, you know. Um, and it just brings a sense of normalcy to your life because, I mean, most of the time I'm either in the studio or on the road. So um, to keep you grounded, like, you do the normal stuff, too, and it just gives you, it gives you, it fulfills everything. It's like it gives it purpose. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Big Boy, is an MC and producer who co-founded the hip-hop group Outkast. The duo was experimental and hugely commercially successful. Big Boy's newest solo album is Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. Let's take a listen to a song from your first uh, solo solo album. There you go. That's right. So you got to count that as the first solo. That's what I do that to. This is one of my favorites from the record. It's called For Your Sorrows. Okay. When it's shot to a three movies, but everything's great like 915, it's back to the time machine, I believe. Back to the rhyming, back to the spit, back to them high hats, kick, slam, got to get think that was it, we everywhere. Like the air you breathe, got them stuck like chucking the what we weave, like a lace front wig stuck to the forehead, let's believe I'll change the speeds, take the lead, change the speed, slow it down just for the sport. What is one of my favorite rappers happens to be too short? Yeah. I like to hear a little bit of too short. Yeah, for sure. One time for sure, dog. Do you think that the music that you make as Big Boy is in some way different from the music that you have made or or, or would be making as half of Outkast? Um, I think it's all in the same vein, really, you know, because, I mean, it's, it's like if you splice some DNA and you got, you know, pure, unadulterated Big Boy, That's this is what it is, but it's all cut from the Outkast tree. Um, it's all from that whole school of funk and... Um, it's go, it's always going to be something different. Like, I don't like uh, no two songs to sound like. I don't like no verses, no cadences, no nothing. I mean, we deal a lot in originality, you know what I'm saying? So if I go into uncharted territory, it's familiar to me because I'm used to being on the outside. Definitely, I color outside the lines. That's how I make the best pictures. I remember when the first few singles from this record came out, and I... I I thought and think that they were great records. None of them was a huge radio hit. And I wondered at the time if that that it made it difficult for people to see and and also the fact that Andre hadn't hadn't been recording almost at all very very rarely made people react to your work as something other than your work and and instead react to it as something you know, in the it, it, as as being the absence of outcast, you know what I mean? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think you know. To me, what I, I just like to make the music, you know, and to to categorize it. I know, you know, like people they always want to see us sit next to each other, but um, you know, they just gotta they gotta they gotta get this this music as we give it to them now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, just be thankful for for what you get and what you got. Y'all stealing it anyway. They just download free off the internet so uh that's another thing so you know um 
just 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 really just deal in the funk, man. Come to the concerts. We're gonna rock you out all the way. Rock out. Do you feel comfortable making great records that go gold? When it, at one point you were making great records that are sell, that sold, I don't remember tens of millions of copies. Um, no, 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 no. Because you got to think. Once you go diamond, it's nowhere. It's nowhere else to go after that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, how many people can say diamond recording artists? I mean, every album that we put out together has been multi platinum. You know, and like when you get in a diamond club, that's ten million or better. There's nothing else to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to look at it these days. You know, with the uh, downloading and, and the social media and then just, just the free music, you got to look at it as if music is free and concert tickets and merchandise cost money. You feel me? So it's all about building a brand. How is your relationship with Andre different now that you're both grown men and you also, you know, you, you have worked together from time to time. Um, you know, he he produced some songs on your last record and so on and so forth. But now that you're not full-time partners, how is your friendship different? It's cool, man. It's real cool. I mean, I just spoke to him the other day. It's like, you know, we're both parents of teenagers now, you know. Um, you know, so we're going to the high school football games and, and things like that. Uh, you know, our kids play together. And, uh, you know, we just really just living our lives, being happy. We worked a lot, you know, being teenagers. So to now, you know, to kind of let it breathe, a little bit is, is no problem. People always mistook that for being like some kind of riff or nothing. But we're grown. Like if I don't if I don't speak to Dre for like six months, the, the moment I see him is like we ain't missed a day. You know what I'm saying? It's like this this is forever. Like we have a relationship that's bigger than music. I can't imagine what it would be like if every time I saw my childhood best friend, it was like international news. <laughs> I know, right? You know, like I couldn't go to the movies or like dinner or something. And that, that's and that's exactly. You just hit the nail on the head. Like we can't just go and sit down and have a dinner somewhere in public. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we just can't just go to the club or, you know, just the small things because it's, it'll, it'll, it's, it turns into pandemonium. So a lot of times we just meet, you know, at my house or at his house or something like that, you know, but or that, you know, our DJ's house, Cutmaster Swift or something like that because, like you said, as soon as we're in public together, it is national news. So, yeah, man. Well, big boy, I really appreciate you taking the time to be hey, on Bullseye. It was really great to have you on the show. I appreciate you being a great, great, great conversationalist like that, if that is even a word. This has been more like a, a cool conversation other than just the, the usual questions. I, I dig how you did it, man. It's like one of the best interviews I've done all year. Thanks, man. That means a lot. Big Boy, the rapper and producer who co-founded the Grammy-winning group Outkast. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by one of our favorite culture critics to recommend some stuff for you to spend your time on. Uh, this week, we're doing some all-timers with Mark Frauenfelder from BoingBoing.net. Hey, hey, Mark, how you doing? Great. How's it going, Jesse? Who am I kidding? It's going great. I'm talking to Mark Frauenfelder. <laughs> um, let's start with this iOS game called The Sword of Fargol. This is one of my favorite iOS games, and it's one that I have played a bunch of times. It's based on a game that was 
written for the Commodore 64 computer in 1983. <laughs> but it's basically a dungeon crawler game where you go through this kind of a mazy dungeon and attack monsters, pick up better weapons and armor and open chests and fight different monsters. And as you descend deeper and deeper into the dungeon, the monsters become more fearsome. The graphics are great. I love the graphics in it. I love the gameplay. It's got that kind of intermittent reinforcement thing that makes you want to play over and over again. The music is terrific. It's by this guy named Daniel Pemberton, who I actually met in 1993 when I was working at Wired. He was 15 years old, and he came over from England to uh, interview me about a, a book I wrote at the time, and he gave me a cassette tape of his music, and it was fantastic for this 15-year-old kid. And he, his career has really taken off. He's a, a uh, composer for movies and television in England now, and the music and sound effects are incredible on this game. Let's change gears completely and talk about this book, The Emperor of Scent by Chandler Burr. Um, this is a book that is about the history and uh, practice of the fragrance and perfume industry. Um, how did you even come to read this book, Mark? Um, yeah, uh, uh, a, a woman who's an editor at Make Magazine told me about it in 1996. She said, oh, this, this book, Emperor of Scent, is amazing. You'll love it. And I, I really like and respect her opinion about everything. Her name's Arwen O'Reilly. And so I, I got the book and I started reading it. And it, you know how some books give you like a new set of eyes and make you see the world in a different way? This book gave me a new nose and made me very interested in the way that things in the world smell. And so it's not only a history of engineering scents uh, and perfumes, but it's also a profile of this guy named Luca Turin, who has been pushing this theory that smell, that odor is based on the vibration of molecules rather than a kind of lock and key uh, a model that most people, uh, most uh, smell scientists, I don't know what the word is now, I don't remember, but most, most smell scientists think that it's the shape of the molecule that attaches to a corresponding receptor and that's what makes it smell but he says no it's the vibration and he's shown some kind of compelling examples of why that might be true but the the scientific community has really fought back against it and it's really hard for him to get his work published in a peer-reviewed journal and the story was about that and it's a really interesting story and then you know the ch chapters alternate with uh, the author Chandler Burr going to these bazaars in the uh Middle East to pick up these really exotic kinds of scents. Uh, like there's this stuff called oud, O-U-D, that's uh, wood that has been uh, eaten by a certain kind of worm. And it's an, an incredible incense. I, I ended up buying some because I had to experience the smell of this stuff myself. It's a fantastic book. And I, I love the fact that I knew nothing about scent when I, when I read it. And I left feeling that, uh, a, a completely newfound appreciation for my sense of smell. A couple of all-time picks from Mark Frauenfelder, Chandler Burr's book, The Emperor of Scent, and the iOS game, The Sword of Fargol. You can, of course, find Mark online at boingboing.net. Thanks, Mark. You bet, Jesse.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. From time to time on this show, we check in with the McElroy brothers, hosts of the advice podcast, My Brother, My Brother and Me, for some help on solving our pop cultural conundrums. Conundra? Conundra. Uh, Travis, Justin Griffin, McElroy, welcome back to the show. What a Thank pleasure. you for having us. I think it's a Condoleezza is the, <laughs> is the plural. Um, let's get right to the questions. This one is from Lance. Is it really gauche to wear a band's shirt to their concert? Or should we no longer care what Jeremy Piven said in the Comedy Central classic PCU? <laughs> <laughs> They're begging us. Please have a party. Feed us drinks. So much of the advice given in that movie is still applicable today. <laughs> I know myself. I tried to thwart the dean at least once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, and you graduated. Trying. You graduated literally decades ago. You're tr- <laughs> in fact, you're trespassing a lot. I have to keep up on who the new deans are. In any situation, the first thing you should do is try to scope out who's the dean. Even if there's not a dean, figure out who the dean is. <laughs> just then, no matter what situation you roll into, just yell, "Who's the dean?" Who's the and dean? See who raises their hand. Uh, I think that if there's no better time to wear a band T-shirt to the band concert, I mean, why why not? I it's it's a like group of like-minded individuals. Couldn't you compromise and wear something? Like tangentially related to the band, but not directly of the band. Like wear a Lil Wayne shirt to the to the Drake concert. Hey, Alanis Morris said it's a it's a it's a, you can't do that on television. T shirt. Do you get it? <laughs> get it? Do you get it? I'm so far back. Here's a question from at Jay Schmazel. I'm a 36 year old married white male from the suburbs. Is it okay for me to like dubstep? Should there be some limit on the number of dubstep albums I own? My friend, I believe you are the exact target demo for dubstep <laughs> right now. You are hitting, being hit squarely in the jaw of your demographic. The only dubstep album you really need is, is Scary Pixels and Nice Sprites by Skrillex. Yes! Oh my god! And I really, I only just said that to really off all the hardcore dubstep fans out there <laughs> they hate that dude and i do not know why the weird thing about dubstep fans is that nothing is dubstep if mm-hmm. you listen to anything and call mm-hmm. there was one song in like the 70s that was dubstep and other than that none of it is dubstep do, do people dance to dubstep I mean, I've tried in my office, but it's it usually looks like I'm trying to squash a mouse. <laughs> that says here. more about your dancing, though, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know. It feels authentic to me. What more is dance but a physical extension of the way the sound makes me feel? <laughs> oh, my God. Here's something from Bobby. Do I need to have one single above all overall favorite movie or... Can I have categories of favorites? I mean, the only Ooh. category... You can, yes, but the category has to be Caddyshack, and the movie inside of that category is Caddyshack. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. So what's the problem? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so you're saying the only acceptable film to be to have as your favorite is Caddyshack. Yeah, it, yeah. Um, but I mean, that's, that's not just me. That's like AMC Top 100. It's always number one. Uh, the Criterion Collection... Is like mm-hmm. their, it's their bestseller and it's their most it's their most Criterion movie. I think the risk you're running if, if you if someone asks you your favorite movie, 
and you answer with, well, hold on, it depends on what, you have already extended the amount of time they wanted you to answer that question. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to do was talk about their favorite movie. So you've got maybe two seconds to just shoot something out before they're ready to move on to the real topic, which is what they like. Also, they just want to move on so they can try and figure out a way to take you home because the only reason you would ever Mm -hmm. have this conversation is if you're on a first date. Justin Griffin and Travis McElroy are the hosts of the podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me. You can find them on Twitter at MBMBAM, and you can find their show for free on our website, MaximumFun.org, or in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. After a break, actress Catherine O'Hara's secret comedic formula. You can't lose with stupid and cocky. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's me, Jesse. MaxFunCon is MaximumFun.org's annual gathering of friends in the mountains above Los Angeles. Join us this spring for comedy, classes, talks, and parties with your new best pals. Tickets for the 2014 edition go on sale Friday, November 29th, And to be honest, we cannot add any more bed capacity, so expect it to sell out quick. Head to MaxFunCon.com the day after Thanksgiving to grab yours. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Catherine O'Hara has spent a career perfectly capturing the magic of the slightly cockeyed. From her work on SCTV to the improvised faux documentaries of Christopher Guest... Not physically, like prefer, with a cockeyed perspective. Oh, nice way to start. Okay. Yeah, and you're fat. Let's go. Wait. <laughs> listen to, Okay, here we go. From her work on SCTV to the improvised faux documentaries of Christopher Guest, she's inhabited beautiful, mm. confident characters Better. who are just slightly, perfectly off. And, of course, there's also this. A leading role in Home Alone, which remains one of the biggest comedy hits of all time. Here she is with her former SCTV castmate Eugene Levy in a scene from Best in Show. She and Levy are hosting a birthday party for their Norwich Terrier, and they're singing a little Norwich Terrier song. God loves a terrier. Yes, he does. God loves a terrier. That's because small, sturdy, bright, and true. They give their love to you. God didn't miss a stitch. Be it dog or be it bitch. When he made the Norwich merrier with its cute little terrier. Yes, God loves a terrier. Catherine O'Hara, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm scared. I want to play a clip of you on SCTV. Um, This is a sketch that I read you wrote. uh, (laughs) I I read you wrote. I read that you wrote. It's always difficult to attribute uh, sketches on uh, sketch TV shows because... um, High Q? Is it High Q? Yeah, Yeah, I did write that. Okay, great. Um, Although it had to be edited by others, but yes. In this scene, uh, you are a contestant on a high school quiz quiz bowl type show, uh, (laughs) and the host is played by Eugene Levy, um, and I I feel like that's the setup that it needs. (laughs) 
Now let's start the game. The first question worth 20 points, and the subject is authors. Margaret Meehan, Parkdale. Henry Miller. I'm sorry, Margaret. Let me please uh, finish the question first, all right? Uh, what famous... Margaret Meehan, Parkdale. Victor Hugo. Oh, I'm sorry, Margaret. If you just uh, let me finish the question first, see how it works. Okay. What famous humorist... <laughs> Margaret Meehan, Parkdale. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Margaret, I'll have to ask you to please let me finish the question before answering, because that answer was extremely wrong. The question is, I want the name of the famous humorist and author who wrote The Adventures of Huckleberry... St. Anthony's Leonard Mandel. Finn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had fun. The bit, the bit that's missing from the audio of that is you pulling this face that is like this combination of um, enthusiasm, consternation, and idiocy that is just unparalleled. I mean, just untouchable. Just a gorgeous take. Oh, thanks. Now it makes me think that, that, that she would be somebody who would have get that reaction from people all the time. <laughs> we're always telling her, shut up, wait, stop talking. But she cannot stop herself, ever. And that's a wonderful thing to watch. Oh, I don't think you can lose with... And I'm not saying that's totally in that character. That, that I mean, in that um, category, that character. But you can't lose with stupid and cocky. I mean, you look at the jerk, Steve Martin and the jerk, or... Will or, Ferrell's entire oh, oeuvre. Uh, definitely. Or Steve Carell in The Office, or Ricky Gervais in The Office. It's just people who are totally oblivious to the impression they're making on others. And just, or uh, the original, um, Barney Fife. You know, something to brag about, something to say. I have no idea what other people are thinking. That's just... You can rarely go wrong with that. What was it like being on the show, when, especially at the beginning, when you had this? You had a male-dominated cast. There was two women in the cast of the show, yeah. both really brilliant. Um, <laughs> but all of these dudes, and did yeah. you have to sort of say, like, hey, we get to do something here, too? Yeah, all the time. All the time. And for a long time, when I first started writing on the show, I would tell my idea to Dave Thomas, and then he would say it out loud. And then I'd be mad that he got a laugh. Like that's my. Then I said that was my idea. Just sad, you know. And and also the Andrea and I keep saying this. The producer hates this, but it's true. We got paid less as writers. We all came from Second City Theater, where we all wrote the material. But somehow the two women were paid less than the men. For a while, I mean, we finally got you know equity later on. But it was pretty early in you know women's liberation, I guess. Women's lib talk. It really. Women were still fighting for it. And, and, you know, it's sad. I mean, they're still in Vanity Fair writing. Well, not Vanity Fair generally, but they let that poor fellow write that article about women not being funny. Um, and I remember at the time, somebody had written in a Toronto paper a story about how women aren't funny. And one of the guys put it up on the board. And they would point, Andrea and I would give an idea. And they'd point to that article. So, oh, you. Jeez Louise. It was a different time. It really was. Did you have to change the way that you approached working on the show because of that? Did you have to think about what you were doing differently, like like learn to be the person that says your idea so no one else can take credit for it? And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dave was helping out by repeating the line. I guess he got the material on the air sometimes. But, um, yeah, eventually I got stronger and stronger and realized, wait, this isn't right. What am I being so wimpy about? And I've got some material here. I've got ideas like everyone else. 
I should just not, you know. It's so sad to be self-conscious or insecure. It just gets in the way of life. You left SETV before it was finished. Why did you decide to leave? I swear it was to try to meet somebody and maybe get married. <laughs> really? Time. Yeah. That or maybe I'm just lazy. It was too much work. I don't know. Did that no, seem- I did feel that way at the time. I remember really. By that time, Andrea was married and had kids. And uh, the guys were, I think most of them were married. And, and that was my life. I just, that's all I did. And I guess it hit me or slowly hit me, slowly smacked me. The fact that, okay, and then what? Then what are you doing? This is going to end at some point. What are you going to do? I can only imagine how all-consuming it was. I mean, I, you know what I mean? It was all-consuming, but it was great. And at that age, I've I've often thought since that that early 20s is just a perfect age to be doing that kind of material. You're not, for the most part, you're not married. You don't have kids. You have all the time in the world to devote to that. I mean, it's perfect as a job, as a boss to hire people that age too, right? And you're also young enough that you're cocky, really cocky. Um, and you believe you could do the world better, do everything better and smarter, and that you have a great take on why things are ridiculous. And, you know, it's just a great cocky, fun time to be able to do that kind of work. Usually when people leave a job like that, they leave it because they think they're going to be a star, right? Am I mistaken in thinking that? I think they do probably, yeah. They think, this is holding me back. No. Well, this is lame. But, like, the next – after I quit, went to a party at Marty Short's and – he put together like a, a reel for me and started showing it at the party. And all I did was weep. It just made me cry forever, like that I'd left this, that it was my, that was my life and I'd dared to leave it. And now they were showing me that I'd made a mistake. I don't, it was such a weird emotional time for me. Yeah, I really wondered where my life was going. I think. Yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Catherine O'Hara is an Emmy-winning actress who's maybe best known for her delusional but charming characters in Christopher Guest's ensemble films, including Best in Show and A Mighty Wind. She also starred in Beetlejuice and a little movie you might have heard of, Home Alone. What was it like to be in the position where all of a sudden you didn't have something running your life? I just kind of holed up for a while. Uh, I bought a house in Toronto. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not married. I don't have anyone. I might as well do something with my money. I was getting killed in taxes. I was getting audited all the time. I was like, what have I done here? It's because I wasn't, I wasn't playing the game. Um, and there was a period there before I did Beetlejuice where David Geffen got my home number and would call me at home. And I was like, who is this guy? Really? I'm so – I'm still so ignorant, but really? <laughs> at the time like who is this he said I got this movie because he was one of the producers on Beetlejuice I got this movie and you should come and do it yeah um okay I gotta go (laughs) it's just lame ass I'm lame ass so then finally I don't know I finally I was really I I got myself to the point where I was kind of depressed like what am I doing with my life really now okay I quit that job I was having fun I was working really hard I was consumed by something other than my own head and uh and now I'm just sitting around and uh, and then they said Tim Burton wants to meet you. I thought, okay. So I flew to L.A. from Toronto, and they said he's a Warner Brothers, and it was Warner Boulevard or something where the executive offices are. But I looked up in that big, fat L.A. Thompson guy. Do you remember those things? Sure. The phone book. Map of, book. Yeah, yeah, the big map book that no one needs anymore. Um, looked up, and I found a Warner something in Anaheim, and I drove <laughs> forever. 
<laughs> Which is an hour and a half from yeah, Los Angeles. And I did not have a cell phone at the time. So I'm just driving and driving. I don't know L.A. at all. I'm on some freeway going somewhere. And I'm thinking, okay, whoever this guy is, he is so far from showbiz. I don't think I should be trying to work with him. <laughs> yeah. Then finally I pulled over somewhere and phoned an agent. They went, no. Told me where it was. I got there and there was a note on the door. Sorry, this is a way long story that finally I was pulled out of my house in Toronto by Tim Burton because then – Luckily, I missed that meeting, and he left a note at his door saying, I'm sorry, I waited as long as I could, <laughs> maybe some other time. Um, and I guess they couldn't find anyone else, so they offered it to me. And I debated forever and then finally went to L.A. and did Beetlejuice, which was great. That's amazing. Love that in, movie. And met between, my husband, who designed the movie. In a pretty narrow period of time, you were in Beetlejuice and Home Alone. Um, and... Beetlejuice was a big hit. Home Alone at the time was the biggest hit oh, yeah. in comedy history. That's the biggest thing I've ever been in. Yeah. What was it like to be in that? Did you think, oh, now I'm gonna, uh, now I should be a movie star of giant, the next Home Alone thing, like thing? You would think. No, I don't. I, I can't. I don't know. I can't think that way. Um, Did you, you pull back from it? Did you think like, oh, I'm. Mm, I never. I never felt it had that much to do with me. You know, I was in the movie, and I played the mom, and that was great. But it was about Macaulay, and it was about the writing and the directing, and it was just about the whole thing. You know, and I was proud to be part of it, definitely, because not only was it a big moneymaker and still plays, but it's a good movie. Did you ever want to be a movie star, movie star? Um, I would like good roles. Whether, Yeah, I would like good roles. Was there? But, but I, mean, I don't, was do there, I need more was... fame? No, I get just enough thanks. Really? One of the really wonderful things in your career, I think, is that you got to be in these uh, in this series of Christopher Guest movies. Yeah. Um, uh, along with, among others, uh, Eugene Levy, who you'd worked with for so many bajillions of years. And, <laughs> yeah. And all of the other and all of the other amazing people in those films. Um, when Waiting for Guffman came up. Uh, how did how did it come up to you? Did like Chris Guest just call you and say like, "Hey, I somehow got two million dollars or whatever it was, and we're going to make a movie"? No, he didn't call. It was all through the agent, and I resisted forever. Did you know it? Yes, I'd met him. Oh, I liked him. Yeah, I just didn't get. I'm not that bright, obviously. I didn't get <laughs> what he was going for, and I guess there was no real script to. There was no script at the time. <laughs> See, I think I'm guided more than has anything to do with my brains. You got a couple of really wonderful scenes in the movie, um, which is obviously a, a big ensemble piece. If folks haven't seen it, I, I feel bad for you because it's real funny. But uh, it's a big ensemble piece. And yeah. one of the scenes, probably your biggest, most crucial scene, uh, I can't play on the radio. So I'm going to play... <laughs> I'm going to play this uh, other scene, which is also wonderful. The movie is about uh, a small-town amateur theater production, and this is you and your husband in the film, played by Fred Willard, uh, auditioning for it. Ding dong! Oh, I wonder who knows I'm vacationing here at the Oasis. Am I late? You! Surprised? How did you find me? I have my ways. Would you like to come in for coffee? You don't need to answer. There's no need to speak. I'll be your belly dance. 
one of the things that I love about your character during this movie is, you know, Fred Willard is bloviating in just full force, like gale force winds, while you just sit next to him and make these little faces the whole time. What choice do you have next to Fred Willard? He said, we have to wear those sweatsuits that we're wearing in that, oh, those horrible um, exercise suits. Just grotesque, suits. like warm-up suits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're like and purple said, Fred, and Fred, no, and come turquoise. on. We could wear something. You know, I'm thinking something attractive and enough. Funny, but it's slightly attractive. No, no. It's like, then I would just finally, yeah, you're right. Okay. Like, just don't do what you would normally do. Don't make your own choices. It was really fun to, to go along with him. But I, I really like the way that um, each of those films uh, really looks at couple relationships i think that's sort of at the center of them and um and in fact when in a mighty wind where you're paired with eugene levy your character barely has any jokes it's really that storyline is a is a relationship storyline yeah i was worried about that at the beginning yeah there's no it's not a funny character my my um, Mickey, yeah. Did you think about this? Obviously, not romantic, but this sort of long, fruitful relationship you'd had with Eugene Levy. Oh, you can't. I don't think you can help but draw on it, whether it's consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously. Yeah, unconsciously probably. Um, no, you can't help. I mean, that's lovely. I mean, you have, and it it. I think it even worked more so for anyone in the audience who knew that Eugene and. I had known each other that long. Being on stage again with Mitch was a great thing. Oh boy, I never thought it was possible. And there we were. Just wish he didn't take things so seriously. You know, that damn kiss. My sister, well, they were all at the show, but my sister Jocelyn said, you let him on. You shouldn't have kissed him if you didn't want to go all the way. And what a great thing about improvising these kind of movies is you really help create each other. You know, by the way, by the way you treat each other and by what you say about each other, it's like, you know, in my mind, went, oh, that's who, yeah. So I'm that person. <laughs> oh, I did that kind of thing. Okay, that changes who I was thinking of. You know what I mean? You really can affect each other that way. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, when Eugene started shooting, he got real nervous about. How he was playing it, I think he he really got into it, so it made him feel ungrounded. You know, he had this idea that he was just beautifully talented, but had some demons or angels who were confusing him. I've never been in better headspace. Uh, I'm writing uh, poetry again. I'm going through a very uh, prolific uh, phase little Brian Wilson-y. There you go, yeah. But he got really nervous, and I think that's where I would say our old friendship came up, that that I had the ability and nerve to say, Eugene, no, you're, no, this is beautiful. Don't be afraid. Just stay with this. You're, it's so, and I'm, and it was like, I was, I was there as, as Mickey. I'm with you. I'm so with you right now, you know. So I guess that's where it came in more, our friendship. Well, Catherine O'Hara, I sure appreciate you making the time to be on Bullseye. Oh, I'm sorry for my long answers. Oh, not at all. It was it was a, it was an honor to get to talk to you. Oh no, for me, thank you.
Here on Bullseye, we like to close with a culture recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Sometime in 1950, a quiet man rented a garage from a neighbor. The quiet man wore glasses, didn't really have friends, and worked as a janitor for the General Services Administration in Washington, D.C. He was small and plain. The man's name was James Hampton. Because he didn't really have friends, we don't know much about what happened in that garage over the next 15 years. Researchers have found a few stories of folks who peeked in over that time, but it seemed mostly to be a solitary thing. In that unheated garage, Hampton would work from midnight when he got off work to dawn, night in, night out. In 1964, 15 years after he rented the garage, Hampton died. Not long after that, the landlord cut open the lock. He was hoping to find something he could sell to help cover some back rent. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like for that landlord to throw open that door, how he must have reacted when he saw what was inside. It was called the Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. You can see it yourself, actually. If you happen to live in Washington, D.C., you could go see it tomorrow. It's in the folk art wing of the Smithsonian American Art Museum, transported whole as it lay when the landlord sold it almost 50 years ago. But for that landlord to open a door expecting to find maybe a motorbike or some old magazines and to find what he did, even that amazing name, the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly, hardly seems to do this thing justice. It's a throne, but it's a hundred other things, too. Imagine the sanctuary of the grandest Catholic church you've ever been in. And then imagine it created piece by piece by one man from discarded furniture, insulation tubes, and layer after layer of metallic foil a collection of the highest devotional art made by one man at night from junk. Hampton wasn't a fine artist or even a carpenter. He was a man who, just like Noah, believed that God had told him to build something, that God had come to him in corporeal form and instructed him to prepare for a very real, very imminent coming of Jesus to take all of his modest life and dedicate it to creating something worthy of a power so much greater than him that it was unimaginable. For that landlord, unprepared to open that door and see it as the light from the opening swung in, 180 individual pieces made from tin cans and broken chairs and a sawed-in-half table, an altar and a throne and a lectern and grand, graceful crowns and that table that the Bible sits on, I'm not even sure what that table's called. All in silver and gold, glittering in the dim light of the garage. It's awesome just to think about. And here's the part of the story where I admit something. I am personally not a believer. I went to church as a kid and I never minded it much. I even worked for a church for a while, but I've never believed. It's not, you know, a, a point of pride for me. It just is what it is. Even if I were a believer, I, I don't think I'd be the same kind Hampton was. I've got plenty of friends who go to church, but I don't think any of them have talked to any angels lately. But when you stand before this throne, you feel what it is to be awed. Honestly, it doesn't matter to me 
If Hampton's masterpiece was the work of God's representative on earth or the work of a third shift employee of the General Services Administration, neither one of those is any more remarkable than the other. I'm tempted to say that when the landlord opened that door, he saw the glory of which man was capable, or alternately, the glory of what God gives man. But my honest opinion is that he saw something else. He saw a man reaching out with all of his soul and reverence for beauty, for universality, a man reaching for something bigger than being a janitor, even bigger than being a man, struggling to reflect God. And if you ask me, it's that beautiful, heroic reaching that's important. The willingness to give it all over to something bigger than oneself, no matter how scary it might be to look upon that bigness. If I were that landlord, if I were Meyer Hertlieb of Washington, D.C., and I threw open that door, I think I would have found great comfort in the inscription that James Hampton left behind. In gold and silver marquee letters, right at the top of his majestic life's work is a simple message. It says, fear not. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org, or you can post about our show in our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. You can get in a big argument about how I just said on the radio that I don't believe in God. After all, getting into an argument about whether or not you believe in God is what the Internet is for. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.